0: Good morning, everybody, again. We are beginning a new series at the start of this year in the book of Judges, and um, I'll be honest, it's my favorite book of the entire Bible, and I know it sounds odd. There's not a book that I spent more time reading, more time researching um, than the book of Judges, and yet there's no book that is all at once so glim, <laughs> so grim and dark, but also so full of hope, I find. And... Um, We're going to go through this book as best we can, pretty close to verse by verse through it. And that means there are occasionally going to be long passages we're going to read that will sound incredibly irrelevant and boring to you. This morning is one of them, (laughs) but I assure you it is not. So we're going to read this morning the entire chapter 1. So it's chapter 1 of Judges, verses 1 to 36. And I know you can get lost in names at times um, and, and in places, locations, and geography, But bear with us, because you're going to see it's it's an incredible passage. So Judges 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there and the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set fire to this, on the city set the city on fire sorry and afterward the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negeb in the lowland and uh, sorry and Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba and they defeated Sheshai and and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said, "'He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, "'I will give him Oxa, my daughter, for a wife.' And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Oxa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and, she, uh, and Caleb said to her, "'What do you want?' She said to him, "'Give me a blessing, "'since you have set me in the land of the Negev, "'give me also springs of water.' "'And Caleb gave gave her the upper springs "'and the lower springs. "'And the descendants of the Kenite, "'Moses' father-in-law, "'went up with the people of Judah "'from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, "'which lies in the Negev near Arad, "'and they went and settled with the people. "'And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, "'and they defeated the Canaanites "'who inhabited Zephath "'and devoted it to destruction.' So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it three sons of Anak, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us, a, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. He showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword but they let the man and his family, all his family, go. And the man went into the, oh, sorry, went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of beth and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or of Akzeb or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them." And we're at the end here. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in the Ahalon, and the Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Whew, there you go. We were going to have somebody else read that passage, but I wouldn't do that to you. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of words there. Let's begin with a man named MacArthur Wheeler. About 27 years ago, almost to this day, January 6, 1995, this man, MacArthur Wheeler, um, was in Pennsylvania, and he decided to go into... Do we have that picture of him up there? It's a bit grainy, but you're going to see why. That's a security camera, that's why it's so grainy. He decides to go into a bank in Pennsylvania and rob it. And it goes so well that he goes into another bank down in a different town and robs it. And although he wore no disguise of any type, when the police eventually come to pick him up, because it's pretty easy, because he just walks up there with no disguise, he was shocked. He was surprised. And all he kept saying to the police was, but I wore the juice. But I wore the juice. And they didn't know what was going on. Here's what we found out after. MacArthur Wheeler had heard somewhere that if you rubbed lemon juice on your face, security cameras couldn't pick you up. So MacArthur Wheeler rubbed lemon juice on his face, took a picture of himself with a Polaroid, and when his face didn't show up in the Polaroid for some reason, he thought, oh my goodness, I'm onto something. So he boldly walks into two, two banks and robs them, comes away with some money, but he's arrested. Now, this story gets national coverage at the time in the United States and is picked up by two researchers from Cornell, David Dunning and Justin Kruger, these two guys. And they're a psychologist and they realize, you know, we we gotta figure this out. Why is it that we can be so oblivious to ourselves? How is it that MacArthur Wheeler and all of us can think something so strongly, be so committed to it, and yet all the world looks at us and says, you're wrong? How can we be so deluded about who we are? So they create a test, many of them. And one of them was you would get, uh, there's a, a list of jokes and they had uh, uh, participants come, and you were, your job was only to determine which jokes on this list are funny. Okay? Which ones are funny? 90% of the group picked the same jokes. Okay? So they'd establish, okay, that is the, that's, those people have a sense of humor that makes sense in the culture. They know what is funny. There was 10%, however, who were oblivious to what's funny. They were checking off things that nobody else in the world thought was funny. But here's the interesting part they found. that ten percent were the most convinced that they were funny. See, they don't know what funny is, but they were positive they were funny. They're those people who go to a party with you, and they, they tell jokes, they're talking constantly, constantly, constantly. And you go home and in the car, and you say, can you believe that guy? And he's going home thinking, I'm the life of that party. He thinks he's the greatest. It's almost like, remember, in American Idol, there's always that one or two, well, sadly, many people who can't sing. And the judges tell them, I'm sorry, you're tone deaf. You cannot be a professional singer. And what do they say? To heck with you. I'm gonna live my dream. I'm not gonna let you squash it. They're the 10%. They will not listen to reason. And how is it that that happens? Because they did test not just on humor, IQ. The people who scored lowest were convinced they were the smartest. The people who were the worst drivers were convinced they were the best drivers. So what this means is all of us are MacArthur Wheeler in some area of our lives. It may, it may not be humor, it may not be, but, but there's an area in our lives when the right question is asked that we think, now you're in my territory, I know. So I bring this up here because as a man who's read this book many times, Judges, and taught it many times, one of the things I notice in us as, a, as Christians is we often assume the book is not meant for us but for someone else. And so we read the book of Judges and we say, because it rightly shows what happens, this is what occurs, to a people when they distance themselves from God. So what happens is we say, ah, oh, you see, that's Canada for you. The moment we stop praying in schools, we've gone to heck in a handbasket, Trudeau, all it's a mess. Be careful, because the book of Judges is not telling you what happens in the world, it's telling you what happens in the church. It does not say the rest of the world is falling apart because they are not near God. It's saying, Israel, you're falling apart because you're not near God. So it's directed at us, at Redeemer. It's saying, this is what it looks like when people, who, even people who intend to worship God, slowly distance themselves from God. So let's not be MacArthur Wheeler and think everybody else is crazy. Instead, let's look and say, what is God saying to us, to the church at this point in time? And when you and, and this is important as well because the world is telling you the opposite. The world will say, you're not the problem, it's the world. It's not what you think about yourself. It's the judges on American Idol. They're the problem. And that's not the case. Judges is unrelenting in pointing a finger at humanity and saying, you have forsaken God. And that can be very difficult, but there's also incredible hope. But it is a very frank look at what happens when the church starts to slowly, almost imperceptibly, you're going to see in this first chapter, drift from God. But it shows us not just what that looks like, the causes and the, and the consequences of it, but also the remedy. How do you not have that happen? So in this first sermon, we're going to look first at a bit of context. Okay? What is the context of the book a little? So you can get some idea of what we're running into. Then we're going to look at the failures in chapter 1, because this is a chronicle of failure. You may have been lost in the names, but it is showing a clear, slow, actually not that slow, 36 verses, destruction and decay of Israel. You may not be able to see it, but I'm going to show it to you. And it's affirmed because God comes right after and tells them this is what's happened. So we're going to see the, the context of the book, the failure, and then the hope that's in it because there is a great deal of hope. So, context. First, Judges 1 is an introduction. Okay? This is going to be a bit more nerdy, but it has to be. Judges 1 is an introduction. You're going to notice that the book starts with Joshua was dead. And then chapter 2, verse 6 says... Joshua's dead. We know he's dead. Why are you telling us twice? Well, because what's happened here is someone along the way wrote an introduction to the book of Judges. So you have him dying twice, and it's not because he's died twice, but because someone came and said, if you're going to read Judges alone, and this is in part of the biblical process, it's part of God's will, I'm not suggesting this is a modern thing, there's introduction. And introductions always summarize the contents of a book and introduce you to themes that you're going to see running throughout the book. And this book... This chapter does exactly this thing to us. And it starts very simply. Here's the context of Israel at the time. Joshua is dead. Israel had been humming along after leaving Egypt with Moses and Aaron and Joshua at the head. And now with Joshua gone, we enter Judges with questions. Well, what's going to happen now that they're in the promised land? Are they going to actually take all the land? Who's going to lead them? What comes next? So lots of questions as you jump into the book of of Judges. And two phrases dominate the book of Judges, haunt the book. And you probably have heard them, especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time. And it is, they, they're eventually joined together. They're said separately, but they're joined together in chapter 17, when it says, "...in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes." And those two statements introduce themes that you're going to see in every single passage of the book, just about, every chunk, every narrative. And the first one, "...there's no king in Israel." is telling you something uh, important. There's no leadership. At this point in Israel's history, they're going from being a people who were a tribal confederation, right? Tribes that were confederated. They were gathered and united around one leader and one place of worship. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, that's our leader. We're separate tribes gathered around them, him. And this one cultic place of worship, that's what we gather around. As you enter into the book of Judges, you see that tribal confederation collapse. They no longer have a Joshua. They stop worshipping together because they don't have a Joshua. And now you begin to see the identity of each tribe fragment and divide. And what the book of Judges is pointing us to is the coming of the king. A monarchy is coming. Remember Samuel, uh, in the book of Samuel. A monarchy is coming, and it'll help unite the people again, not just under David, but under this greater David, this Messiah. So there's a leadership vacuum. That's the first problem in Judges. The second thing is that as you've all heard before. They are doing everything, whatever is right in their own eyes. Now, this is a common one, but let me introduce you to this idea um, by talking about a, a very staunch but helpful atheist named Friedrich Nietzsche. If you know your German philosophers, look at that mustache. That's a man's mustache there. <laughs> That's a soup strainer. That's like Landy McDonald. Sorry, if you know hockey. So, Friedrich Nietzsche, not a Christian by any stretch, not a friend of Christianity, He's the one who quipped this, this very famous line of God is dead in the 19th century. When he did it, you have to understand, he was not saying it triumphantly. Although he was no friend of Christianity, he wasn't rejoicing that God was dead. He was saying, boy, we're in trouble if there's no God. And the best place, if you don't want to read a lot of philosophy, is read a one or two page paper, it's not long by him, it's called The Parable of the Madman. It's a parable. And in it... It's a madman who runs into the market with a lantern and he starts yelling that God is dead. Here is what Nietzsche wrote. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not staying or straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? We are, we, must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Now, lots going on there, but his most poignant line, this is that one, who gave us a sponge to wipe away the horizon? If you've ever been at sea and you're on the ocean, you'll notice something. The only way you can tell what is up or down is the horizon. It's otherwise what differentiates between water and sky. So there's a horizon. So he is saying, God is that horizon, You and I have known forever what is right and wrong, good, evil, up and down, because there's a God. But if you and I take a sponge and wipe away that horizon and we remove God from the equation, how do we know what's good and bad? How do you know if abortion is good or bad? How do you know if murder, how do you know if Putin is doing the right or the wrong thing? And he says, here's the problem, says Nietzsche. Nietzsche says, the problem is you and I will have to become gods we're going to have to then get a pencil and draw that horizon back up. And we won't get it perfectly because we're human. And as a result, wherever we draw that line to say, this is good, this is bad, it's going to be chaos because we're not up to the task. And he predicted that the 20th century would be the bloodiest century in history, and it was by far. Not only that, this is relevant for the book of Judges because as we see in the book of Judges, Israel trying to say, how do I draw this line, what is good and bad? Not just generically in the world but in Israel God approves of this doesn't approve of that he is a Republican not a Democrat he is a conservative not a liberal he he supports the convoy he doesn't support the convoy he likes vaccines he doesn't like vaccines see the problem you start creating a line and Nietzsche says it's going to be ugly because without God you can't draw the line so he wasn't rejoicing that there was no God he was worried what are we going to do now that there's no God and this is exactly what Judges is showing us. It shows what happens when we try to draw that line, the horizon, and decide what is up and down for ourselves. And the result is first moral and faith decay, and eventually it falls into anarchy. By the time we get to chapter 21 of this book, it's going to be so miserable <laughs> that you're going to be wondering how the heck is the gospel even visible in this book? And yet, it's part of Scripture, and Christ is dripping in pages and in the verses of it. So, these two points, there's no king and everybody's doing what they want. This dominates the book. By the way, in the book of Judges, if you count up all the di- people who die, 250,000 people die in the book of Judges. Very dark, very dark. Very, uh, it's unrelenting. And then we move now, if that's the context of the book, let's look at this chapter specifically, because you're probably wondering, okay, now this chapter's pretty boring what is what's what's going on so understand this in the book of judges you're going to find almost no commentary the author gives you fact after fact after fact this is what happened a woman later on is going to be raped to death and then dismembered and her body parts sent to each of the tribes and you're going to be thinking what the heck is going on why isn't god speaking why isn't the narrator saying this is bad why is he just presenting the facts Because we're very used to, in the Bible, God showing up and saying, bad, or good. Or we're used to other stories where the narrator makes it so obvious that bad is bad and good is good. So when there's dead silence, often in the book of Judges, Christians get nervous. Because what does it mean, for instance, when we get to Samson, when God tells Samson to break a law that God gave him? We're going to get there. What kind of, what, you stand now at that moment in the presence of a God who is sovereign and holy, and we don't know what to do. It's, it's, it's nerve wracking at times. How do we reconcile a God who doesn't step in when Jephthah sacrifices his daughter to God? So Christians are nervous about it. Skeptics use the book of Judges as a reason to either not believe or to shoot, to shoot arrows from the outside and say, see, if your God was good, why where is he? Show up. Where is this God? So it's a very difficult book in that regard because it does force you to think and wrestle. You can't come out of the book of Judges with a two-dimensional version of God. Like, he's good, he's bad, something you sew on a pillow. You can't; It just doesn't exist. You must wrestle with the real, untamed but good God. And so, with that then, how do you know what is up and down? How do you know the horizon for Judges? How do you know if it's good that Gideon asks and lays out a golden fleece? It's bad, by the way. We all think it's good. That's what we teach our kids in Sunday school. But we know it's not good when he does that. But how do we know that? How do we know if everything you just read is good or bad when they cut off the thumbs and the toes of Adonai Bezek? Is that good or is it bad? The way to know that is to look at the book of Deuteronomy. I won't get into all the detail, but we know whoever wrote the book of Joshua through to Kings had the book of Deuteronomy right beside them. And they were watching and they're trying to show you Specifically, how Israel kept breaking the rules. They kept not living the way they were supposed to. And when you read chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, God says, here is how you're supposed to behave when you go into the promised land, Israel. When you go into this land, and I'll just paraphrase it, we won't go into all, you can read it, but I encourage you to. He says, three things you must do when you enter the land of Canaan and it becomes yours. First, you must show it absolutely no mercy. No mercy. Kill everything. We'll get there. First thing. Second one, make no covenants with anybody when you go into the land. Third one, don't marry them. So those three things are basically the only commands he gives when you're entering Canaan. I'm going to give you this land, you go in, you kill them all, make no covenants, and don't marry them. If we know that that is what is expected, that becomes your horizon as you read the book of Judges. Start looking and seeing, are they doing these things? And if you apply this to chapter 1, you're going to realize, oh my goodness, they're always, always, constantly not doing what God says. So let's walk through the chapter 1 very quickly, and I'm going to show you how it's a slow but gradual fall into chaos. So it begins, Joshua is dead, Israel comes before God, which is good, and they say, who's going to lead us? Who should go first? It is interesting that God doesn't declare one leader, There's no man to replace Moses, Aaron, or Joshua. It's just a tribe. That's interesting. Is that because there's no men worthy? We don't know. Silence. We just know God's doing a different thing. Then they say, Judah, your job is to go. That's what God says. Judah then says, great, Simeon, come with me. Did God tell him to bring Simeon with him? No, he doesn't. So what we don't know, is that a good or a bad thing? So strategically, it makes sense to bring your brother with you because two is better than one. But God didn't say Judah and Simeon go. He said Judah go. So you're thinking, okay, maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's not a big deal. So they go and they destroy the lands. They do, everything's going well so far. They then come across this place called Bezek, which is a little town. Adonai Bezek, the word Adonai means Lord. And the king, the leader of this town, Adonai Bezek, they capture. They then cut off his thumbs and his toes and bring him to Jerusalem with them, and he ends up dying. Now, a couple problems. Were they told to take captives? No, don't take captives. But they do take a captive. Not only that, they mutilate him the way Canaanites mutilate people. See, when God says you're gonna take the land, one of the things he does all through Deuteronomy, he says, you are to go and wage war, but not like the world wages war. The world goes in and dominates and rapes and pillages and takes everything. You are there as an instrument of judgment. You do not wage war like the world. So when we hear that Judah goes in, takes a captive, and then mutilates him like a Canaanite does, they're showing a subtle preference for Canaanite culture. I'm gonna wage war like the world. Is that on purpose? We're not told if it's good or bad. But again, you see, he's just not a little slight disobedience. And watch how it now begins to ramp up. From there, they then, we then are told the Kenites, who are Moses' father-in-law's people, Jethro, are then brought in as they were promised, and they now get to settle in, Can- in Canaan with Israel. They're not Jews, so we're left to wonder. He's, you're not supposed to bring non-Jews in. So is that, a, is that a good or a bad thing? Okay, we don't know yet. But then more happens. We're then told that they don't wipe out the people of Arad, but they settle among them. So do you see what's happened? Now, Judah and Israel is not able to push everybody out. Instead, they settle among the people there. Then we read, finally, that they can't drive up a certain group of people because they have iron chariots, which would have been like nuclear weapons. Because This is a time when the Bronze Age is turning to the Iron Age. So iron would have been pretty powerful. So when we think, okay, well, they couldn't do it. But there's a problem. God is with them, so how do they lose? They are told to wipe them out, and they can't. And we know from Joshua chapter 17, verse 16, that Joshua had faced iron chariots and beat them. So why is it that now they can't beat them? It's the first failure. So we're now beginning to see maybe maybe there's, there's problems here because if God says, I'm with you and you're going to take the land, why aren't they taking the land? But now, after Judah's top part is done, the first 20 verses, everything begins to really accelerate in the decline. Now watch. First, Benjamin goes to Jerusalem to fight, but he can't. Although we were just told that Judah had crushed Jerusalem, Benjamin goes in and can't settle it. They have to cohabitate with the Jebusites, so they're also failing. Joseph, the tribes of Joseph, which are Manasseh and Ephraim, they go to Bethel, and they are told, the Lord is with you, take the the city. And then we're told, rather than jump in and take the city, first they scout out the city, and then they make a pact with somebody in the city to give them inside information. Were they told to make covenants with people? No. But they do. And not only do they make a covenant, but then that person they made a covenant with goes and plants... A Canaanite city, so now rather than pushing Canaanite influence and culture away from Israel, they're allowing it to coexist and create a franchise there. So you're seeing there's a, this disobedience bit by bit by bit. Then, far from being the swarm of locusts, remember uh, in Joshua, people are terrified of Israel because they're coming in, they're crushing everybody. But now people hear of Israel and think, oh well, they're just going to be a minority among us, and they end up cohabitating. Then in verse 30 and 31, you see a very subtle but important shift in what the writer is doing. So we'll put it up on the screen. In verse 30, it says, the Canaanites lived among them, meaning the Canaanites are the minority living amongst Israel as they come in. The very next verse says, the Asherites, who are Israelites, lived among the Canaanites. See what happens? Now, far from dominating the area, the Jews are moving in, and now they're forced to be the minority living in a little ghetto amongst the Canaanites. See how the ties have shifted? Far from the great optimism of verse one, let's go get them. Now it's shifting. And the book ends, or the chapter ends, with the tribe of Dan not only not taking the land they're supposed to take, but they're driven back, it says, into the hill country. They can't come to their land. And the entire chapter ends again, it sounds subtle, but it's not with these words um, And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Silah and upward. The chronicle that was supposed to show the triumph of Israel ends with a chronicle of the Amorite territories, not Israelite territories. Have you seen what's happened? It went from this optimism of taking the land into slowly compromising, bit by bit by bit. And I know this is what, and we know this is exactly what we should see here because right after chapter 2, in the first verses of chapter 2, God shows up and he hammers Israel. You have not obeyed me. And now, as a result, I'm going to leave this land, I'm going to leave the people in the land, and they're going to be a thorn in your side because you have not obeyed. And what you're seeing in chapter 1 is the slow but, but clear compromise that don't feel like compromises, but they are subtle, but they're constantly happening because there is no such thing as a non-spiritual decision. I said this to somebody once, and they said, that's not true. I, I had a grapefruit for breakfast. It's not spiritual. I said, hold on. What you decide to put in your mouth is determined by what you think the human body is. If you think the body is a temple, you're not going to drink syrup for breakfast. You're going to eat well. Make no mistake, every decision you make has spiritual consequences. Israel was not being careful. They were not carrying out what you call harem. Old Testament, the word harem is that word for kill everything, devoted to destruction. And we're going to talk later at some point in the series about is that fair. But remember a few things. One, the Canaanites are not innocent people. Every historian who knows this period knows the Canaanites were sacrificing children. There was all sorts of injustice. It was not a good people. And God says, I've given them hundreds and hundreds of years, and they've gotten worse. So this is judgment, first of all. Second, you need to clear them out because I know you people, Israel. I know you, church. I know you, Carl if you allow even a shred of the culture in you, you're going to take it all. If you let just a little bit of erotica into your house, it'll soon be porn, a porn addiction. If you let a little bit of, of, um, of poor judgment with your money in, it's going to become a lot of it. Little bit, little bit. So God says, you need to wipe it all away. And Israel fails at this continually. And one of the things I see today, I saw this even this weekend in talking to people, is this, we're very easily misdirected as Christians. There's a lot of Christians who think the most important thing right now to think about is how the government is trying to rob you of your rights and your privileges. And the whole while you're here worrying about Trudeau, you're not realizing that you are waging war like the world. So when Israel can't defeat the iron chariots, you know why? They start looking at the chariots saying, okay, let me. how am I going to beat this strategically? And it looks shrewd. But God says, I didn't ask you to worry about defeating specific types of armor. I just told you to obey me. And so the best way, the surest way to obey God is not to focus on the enemy, but to obey God. And this sleight of hand, this misdirection, and I have conversations with people sometimes, and Christians should have godly conversations. But those conversations should often be rooted in, not often, always be rooted in scripture, not in culture and politics. If you want to talk about how the government is falling apart, show me in scripture how you're supposed to interact with them. Don't tell me you have to take on the way the world fights, go on social media and hammer Justin Trudeau. Have a, a nice Trudeau flag that says F Trudeau on your car. That's not that's not a biblical way of interacting. And see the subtle misdirection. The whole while you're worrying about big persecution and you're not realizing the erosion of your faith is trip, drip, dripping away, just as it does for Israel. I worry about that for myself constantly. I remember being at, in Prince Edward Island years ago. I, spoke at a con- I was at a conference there, and um, I had heard that the, the shoreline of PEI is eroding by 28 centimeters a year, which is incredible. Five years later, I go to the city, back to the province, to speak at a con- something, and I realized I'm driving by a, a, a lighthouse that we had taken a tour of the first time I was there, and you see, my goodness, the lighthouse is a lot closer to the shore, because now it's moved two meters closer to the shore. That slow erosion that you don't see is happening. Make no mistake. And I'll close this second point before we get to the last one with, once again, C.S. Lewis. In the Screwtape Letters, he um, has a senior demon speaking to his nephew, saying, this is how you want to pervert a man away from Christ. And here's what he says. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That's a concern. I remember reading Lewis again, says, you know, the worst part about being middle-aged when you're at this 30, 40-year-old age is you think you're making your way in the world all the while the world is making its way in you. You think, I've got a home, I've got stability, everything is good, my kids are good. And the whole time, your perspective is being changed. So now what matters to you is having a home and having good kids. And it's dangerous. And Judges shows us this slow decay of faith. Now, hope. Let's get to some hope. Because there is hope. So how do you do it? What is the answer? How do you stop this decay? How do you stop it? Um, and the answer is spiritual harem. The holy war that God is expecting Israel to carry out on individuals in the Old Testament is no longer valid. We're, not, we're no longer called to go out and murder people. Uh, thank goodness. We're not called to run out to the next mosque or the gym and start hammering people. But what we are called to do is to carry out spiritual harem that is just as ruthless. When in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That doesn't mean cut off your hand, literally. What he's saying is you must deal so drastically with sin in your life that it's like cutting off a vital part of you if it means safety and, and preservation within Christ. That We have to be super ruthless in our lives in that regard. But how do you do it? And as I said, the irony is you don't focus on the chariots because if you're a person, for instance, let's use the government example, who's so worried about our, government rights be, our rights being taken away, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned about these things, but if that's the dominant issue, then what happens is you start watching, and when you see they are attacking you through social media and through the media and through propaganda, what do you then want to do? Attack them with the same tools they're using. And so we end up with Christians who think it's good to do these things, and as a result, the enemy is won. Look at them, look how easy it is to draw them off. Instead, what you do is, as I said this to you before, when I was at TD Bank as a kid, well, teenager, I was a teller. And I was so excited when they were going to teach us about counterfeit money. I wanted to see, I, was, I guess I had that, you know, that mentality of a young man wanting to see fake money. And I was so disappointed that the day when they were training us, they just brought in real money. And, I, and they said, no, no, the, re- the best way to count this spot of fraud is to know the real thing. Don't worry. Stop focusing on what the fake looks like. If you know what the authentic money looks like, you'll smell the fraud no matter what form it comes in. That's brilliant. That is exactly what you and I should be doing. When I hear a Christian say, I've been spending a lot of time talking, thinking about demons. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how the government is doing something. I say, hold on. Not necessarily bad, but your focus should be on obeying Christ first and foremost. And so it sounds not very cool, but it's very simple. The best way to stave off faith decay is spiritual habits. Read your Bible, pray, gather with people, worship, participate in the sacraments like we're going to do today with communion. Focus on obeying Christ first and foremost. And because if you don't, that chronic neglect becomes someone who you look, you know, over time you become a Christian who, if you're even a Christian, who looks really well-informed. You know all of what's being said in the media, but you can't quote a scripture for your life. You don't attend any longer. You're not faithful to give or to serve or to love people. You just become a cynic. And the best way is, again, count, dive into these spiritual habits. And we know it's the best way because this is what happens in Judges. In chapter 2, right after what we just read, the very next words are these, the next five verses. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, he said, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is, what is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept and they called the the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So we know now the interpretation we just went through of chapter 1 is legitimate. God says, you're falling apart, you're not listening to me. And as a result, this is what, what happens. Now, here's what you have to be careful of. God is in no way saying, because you're not good people, you have a bad life. It's not what he's saying. Because you'll notice if you go to Deuteronomy, he says very clearly to them this, in verse 6, I don't think I have it up there, but that's okay. He says, do all these things. No mercy, no covenants, none of that. He says, do this, for you are a holy, a people holy to the Lord your God. See, He says, you are already chosen. You're already loved. You're already set apart for me. If you want to live happily, it's not going to mean salvation. You're already God's people. If you're a Christian, you are saved regardless of your obedience. The problem is, of course, Are you sure you're even saved if you're not obedient? That's the question we have to ask. And he's saying it's not the motive then. The reason you can avoid the decay, the reason you can seek God instead of the media and all these things is because of what he says in that passage. When at the start of chapter 2, when he says, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Do you understand what's happening here? The angel of the Lord is often, is literally God. You'll see that when we get to Gideon. Why is it that God is said to be in Gilgal and then he moves to Bochim? Is God like in a car? Isn't he everywhere? Like why is it that we have this specific stage direction that God goes from one city to another? It can't be accidental. Why not just say he showed up, he met them at at Bochim? The reason is when you understand Gilgal. If you go back to Joshua chapter 5, Gilgal is the place where God met them and said, and I, I think I have it up there, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So what's happening there is this. God is saying, you're a people who were in Egypt, and you had two problems, two shames that I have to roll away from you. The first one is social. Being a slave in the ancient world was a social, you're a pariah. It was miserable, shamed in the culture. I've rolled away that shame, but also you have the legal shame. You're sinners. And the shame that you should have for disobeying the God who loves you and chose you has been rolled away from you. So when Israel hears that God was in Gilgal and is now in Bochim, they know what that means. He has come from a place where he has forgiven us, and that means there's hope for forgiveness now, if we'll repent. And you and I, as Christians, when we read it, when you hear that something has been rolled away, what do you think? Stone. The stone that is put in front of the tomb that keeps you locked in death has been rolled away. And so, when you and I cannot live up to the standard God has made for us, none of us have, none of us do, when that happens, we look at the stone that has been removed for us, and that gives us motivation and the power. The motivation, because then we say, I can obey God without having the anxiety of thinking, if I don't obey him perfectly, if I haven't given enough, if I haven't served enough, if I haven't read enough Bible, then I'm not saved. That anxiety is gone, because now you're not reading it to be saved, because you can't read enough to be saved. You're reading it because you love him. And then it adds the power because he says, and I'm sending my spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes into every believer and says, I'm helping you here. There's a way out. So you don't need to follow this. And so we have the motive to follow God and obey and the power to do it. And it's all written in small letters here. And you have to be able to see this. If you're not a student of the, old, of the New Testament, you're not going to smell Christ in the Old. But you can see these little Easter eggs, if you want to call it that, littered throughout Scripture. And so the answer is very simple. Dead things decay, living things don't. If you're alive, you don't decay. We have Christ in us. If you're a Christian, the answer when we have sinned is repent, not to be saved, but to mend the fractured relationship with God because we have wronged a God who deserves much, much better, infinitely better. So we repent, and then we try to do better, we obey. If you're a skeptic, the answer is still the same. You've sinned. The answer is to repent, Because this God is always willing. There's no sin that you could have committed that he will not forgive. That's what Gilgal shows. That's what the book of Judges shows. That's what the cross shows. So even now, repent and believe.